Shauna, it was so funny when you messaged me and told me about the tampon crisis and told me that your dad had suggested that you better go out and buy some feminine products or feminine hygiene products. I was like, oh, that was like a really awkward conversation to have with your dad. So, yeah, I, I can't even stop laughing because, yeah, so my dad in his retirement has been keeping up with all things. I mean, I really think he should just become a journalist and follow his calling on the nightly news because he's been keeping up with all things worldly. And my dad sent a text saying that, Shauna, I don't mean to be in your business, but you might want to stock up on feminine hygiene products. And I'm thinking, what is he talking about? Apparently, y'all, there is a tampon shortage. Did y'all, even after we just had an episode on the Honey Pot Company and feminine hygiene products, now, quite legitimately, there is a shortage. So, Lisa, I hope you ran out and stocked up. I don't mean to become a hoarder or anything, but did you stock up? I stocked up. I took your dad's advice. Well, but you know what? I I appreciate dad bringing this up to my attention because he really made this great connection between something as what we think might be trivial, which is not in a woman's world, um, tampons and how they connect to this larger system and the shortages that are going on in the country. So, you know, daddy may be on to something. He, he may be able to teach a whole lesson on systems thinking, but I think we should talk about this because we mention it constantly, but I don't think we've ever defined it to our listeners. No, not explicitly, I don't think. So let's do that. Yeah. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Hey, Sarah Gross here. I'm Katherine Taylor. Sarah True here. Hey there, this is Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold. Celine here. I'm Haley Chura. Hey, it's Alyssa Gadeski here. I'm a professional triathlete, Ironman champion, professional triathlete, health and fitness writer, a gravel cyclist, two-time Olympian, and former All-American triathlete, founder and CEO of Feisty Media. None of us would have had the opportunities we've had in sports without the passing of Title IX and the changes that came in its wake. So, as the hosts of Feisty Media's podcasts, we decided to band together and create a series to tell the stories behind the law that changed everything. This special series will be presented on the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast feed. Subscribe now to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. This is nine. 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 Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. 
And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and use the code feisty for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. So Lisa, you're exactly right. My dad was so hilarious when he called me uh, or, or texted me to tell me about this tampon shortage. And my first giggle was, well, he's, he's not telling my mom this. My mom is 69 and you know, that, that, that ship has passed, but for me, um, it's still a need. And what I thought was so interesting though, was that he made this whole systems connection when he said, well, Shauna, you should probably go stock up, but I understand how this is happening because your products aren't in the stores. Your products can't get to the stores because there's a huge gap in the trucking industry right now as far as drivers. Plus, gas is so expensive that there's probably fewer loads being dropped at your retailer. And so he just continued to make this whole chain of connections between the lowly tampon and how it's distributed in this larger system. And I'm thinking to myself, daddy, you are just a damn genius because I'm panicking about making sure I have what I need. And he's saying, I get it because I understand even just transportation systems, for example, and how it's connected. So I thought it was just Mm -hmm. a great light bulb moment for me, even though we talk about systems all the time. Yeah, I think that's great. And I, I mean, I would cringe if someone in my family um, asked me about tampons, but then if they were then used that as an entree into a connection about all these systems, then I would be pleasantly surprised. You know, <laughs> I had recommended you watch that uh, John Stewart show. It's on Apple TV and um, it's called mm-hmm. The Problem. And he just recently did an episode on racism and it was called The Problem with White People. And there was a white gentleman that he had on who didn't understand what John Stewart and one of the other people who was on the panel meant with systems, right? He kept saying, mm. what are these systems? Tell me what these systems are. And, you know, John Stewart used the example of redlining and tried to like track that thread through, but it got pretty heated. Mm. And um, it just made me think much like your comment at the start of the show is you and I are always talking about systems thinking and systems. And constantly, like, constantly. And how systems are a problem. And this system mm-hmm. is a problem. And that system is a problem. And I think there's like an assumption, right? That everyone knows what we're talking about. And right. your, dad, your dad does, obviously. So uh, <laughs> um, yes. maybe we yes. could actually walk through some specific non-tampon examples of systems. <laughs> um, yeah and otherwise to kind of really Mm. make it clear so that if you're unsure one or if someone asks you the question that this white dude asked on the show what system Mm. is it that you're talking about in relation Mm -hmm. to racism you'll have an answer I don't know oh yeah absolutely absolutely and you know uh, systems in in my opinion are I mean, they're in everything. They're in the air that we breathe. They're in everything that we do. And so, you know, for this gentleman to 
still be, it, it would be something different if he said, which system are you talking about? But for a white male to say what systems, kind of intimating that there is no system. And I'm thinking to myself, but you exist in a world, your own world, where you think that you are absolved from systems when actually we don't have a choice. You know, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we are all part of systems that are all around us. And so, you know, when it comes to these systems, I think, Lisa, you and I have pressed very hard for people to think, uh, to use systems thinking when it comes to DEI. And so the way it's defined is that systems thinking is more of this holistic approach that my dad was talking about, a holistic approach to analysis that focuses on the way that a system's parts interrelate with each other and how systems work over time and within a context of larger systems. So it's almost like ecosystem, ecosystem, ecosystem. It kind of reminds me of uh, yeah. when you're a kid and you're putting together a solar system and then your mind is blown after you put together this solar system that there are other systems that you're like, whoa, I didn't know that. And so given that, it's very similar to that, but to assume that there is no system or that you're not a part of it is really naive, very naive. Yeah. I mean, even if you're not willing to acknowledge that the systems within which you live and work are discriminatory, to say that there are no systems is just right. mind-boggling to me. Right. Right. Um, right. Mm-hmm because it's mm -hmm. so interconnected as your dad demonstrated. So I think one of the big ones for me, and mm -hmm. this is one of the examples that John Stewart used was when we think about housing and Oof. access to loans and mm -hmm. how um, folks of color are disproportionately renters, right? Are disproportionately mm -hmm. unable to get loans and um, that that has its roots well, it has its roots in the enslavement of African-American people, but tracking that forward slightly in segregation, Jim Crow and redlining, right? And mm -hmm. we talked about redlining before, Shauna, but I'm wondering if we want to give a more detailed explanation. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, your your comment about the housing, no, loans, banking, and so forth. My mom was a bank teller for 46 years, and she and I kind of separately, but yet together, watched this movie called The Banker, if you never heard of it. Um, and it was such a great movie. I think it might have been on Netflix. And it was the story of uh, two men who had literally pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they infiltrated a company um, to become lenders. And they used the face of a white, what I would call co-conspirator. So if we go back to uh, our podcast on the levels of white identity. Um, they pulled a co-conspirator with them to be the face of the bank that was lending. And what was perceived as a white male was lending to black families and lenders that wanted to buy homes. And so they tried to figure out a way to do this so that more black families could have access. And so that was an entire system that was created, but that system was connected to redlining. And there are such things as redlining, greenlining, blue lining, et cetera, based on the identity group. But the identity group that we're talking about with redlining happens to be black folk, okay? But we could pick you know, there are different colors for different identity groups, including Jewish communities, Asian communities, et cetera. 
And the challenge with redlining originally, if everyone runs out and gets the book, um, The Black Butterfly by Lawrence Brown, he specifically talks about redlining in Baltimore and some of the hyper segregated cities. And he talks about redlining being a way in which originally it was a systematized way to quote unquote, keep safety. So literally they were called safety and security maps so that people would know the areas where black people lived, Asian folks lived, Jewish siblings lived, all of that. So that redlining, just simply by someone giving their address, you would know where that person lived and it was probably in that black section of town. And so you can imagine, Lisa, when you go into the bank and you're filling out the paperwork saying that you want to buy this home in this address, they know by the address and the street and the residential area where that is. Oh, that's probably a black person because it's in a red lined area of that city or town. That was used in order to affect a number of different things, including what you were mentioning before, housing and loans, but also other things such as voting. So lots of different things to disempower Black communities amongst other communities. And so given that, we can still now see redlining. So Lisa, for example, where my grandmother lives, there is a distinct line. So when people say across the tracks, they're not playing. There's a distinct line that a railroad track so that we know addresses on the south side of the tracks are probably mostly white individuals, even to this day, 2022. And neighborhoods that are on the north side of the tracks are probably about 90% African-American families. It still has trickled down to this day, which determines who has access to what. So that's my short version of redlining. Um, But if you haven't gotten the book, The Black Butterfly by uh, Lawrence Brown, he talks about Baltimore, he talks about Milwaukee, Detroit, a number of different cities that have been hyper segregated, meaning that it was indeed law and that law was perpetuated to through and beyond Jim Crow to make sure that cities stayed segregated. So it's still out there. And then you have mass de-investment in communities that are dominated by folks of color, particularly African-American and Black folks. And so Mm -hmm. then that's where you see kind of a deterioration of public services, schools, and other, um, you know, buildings and parks and such within those communities, right? And then, or Mm -hmm. like massive highways being built (laughs) through um, African-American communities to make white people coming from the suburbs after white flight make their, you know, traveling easier. Mm -hmm. And so what we're tracking here, right, is we started with housing and loans, but these pieces are all connected, right? It's a Mm -hmm. chain. It's not necessarily linear, but they're all, they all make up a system that essentially maintains um, a lack of generational wealth because generational wealth is often um, Mm -hmm. gained through real estate. And if you can't get Mm -hmm. a loan, you can't buy a home, right? Or if you're Mm -hmm. able to buy a home, but you're buying a home in a community that's been redlined and there's Mm -hmm. no investment in that community, then your wealth doesn't accrue in the home because the home loses value, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. So then track that even further forward to now and just thinking about hobbies uh, such as endurance sport, Mm -hmm. who who are the groups of people that have less access to discretionary income because Mm -hmm. they don't have the same access to wealth or time or space. 
right? Mm-hmm. Right. And and so let, let's go there even. I'll give you a great modern day example right now. So I currently live in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, but prior to this for 11 years, I lived in Prince George's County, Maryland. Prince George's County usually toggles between number one and number two in the country as far as African-American residents that have extremely high income. So we're not talking about people that are, are struggling financially. We're talking about people who have money. But because of historical implications and longstanding redlining, the challenge will then become, let's, let's tie this to sport, redlining to sport. So if you're looking for access to a pool in Prince George's County, that's a public pool. That's not something where you got to pay, you know, 10, 15, 20 bucks as a drop-in fee, a public pool. Yes, there are tons of public pools in the area, but how many of those public pools are not splash parks, but they are actually lap pools where you can actually swim and train for a triathlon. It's not that many because redlining connects to where most Black people live, which then connects to what they think is Black people's ability or inability to swim. And so therefore, here comes the, the white savior complex. We realize that, yes, everyone should have access to pools, but what kind of pools are we talking about? Since we assume Black folks can't swim, let's give them a splash pool, which is not helpful when you're an endurance sport athlete trying to swim. Right. Right. I can only think of two, and I may be wrong. I'm going to look up the numbers before we post this. I can only think of two public pools that actually are lap pools that you don't have to pay an exorbitant drop-in fee in the county to swim laps in two. That's it. In a county that's that large and overwhelmingly African-American. And this is the one place that I know in the country that has overwhelmingly African-American high school swim teams, for example. Like if you go one or two counties over, you might find one person of color on an all-white swim team. So we have people here that do this type of sport um, or sport training, but yet redlining historically has kept us from having uh, the resources, the access, the pool resources to do what we need to do. So yeah, it directly relates. Yeah, so that system of housing um, or housing discrimination, I suppose would be the better way to put it, is, um, mm. you know, its tentacles reach far and wide and are still really right. relevant. So when we're talking about a system in that context, right, you can mm-hmm. you can think about that historical um reality and pull that forward to today to all kinds of um issues including endurance sport and i was i was watching a, a like abc dateline or something i don't even know what it was but um so mm-hmm. jennifer lopez um j-lo she is partnering with the longest standing woman woman ceo of a fortune 500 company and they have created a scholarship program for Latinx or Latina um, uh, business entrepreneurs. So they are creating loans um, uh, of about $5,000 and they're hoping to hand out, um, hand out, that is a poor choice of words. They're hoping to provide loans and financial support mm-hmm. in the realm of like a billion it's some like huge number I feel like it's more than millions and wow. by like 2030 or something and it's specifically aimed at Latina women Latinx women because they also 
are disproportionately um, uh, um, or underrepresented mm -hmm. when it comes to business entrepreneurship and the ability to get loans. So when we think about women's mm -hmm. leadership in sport and outside of sport, there are also very few Latina women, again, coming back yes. to banks or other mm -hmm. lending um, organizations will not lend to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, yeah. and, you know, and even going further into the financial realm, which I'm still getting acclimated with. So, um, Lisa, you shared with everyone before, but this year I get the, the pleasure of being a Tory Birch Fellow for 2022 going into 2023. Just yesterday, we had what's called the Embrace Ambition Conference, where Tory Birch herself delivered a keynote that said out of all of the venture capital that's provided to entrepreneurship only to entrepreneurs themselves, only 2% is provided to women at all. 2%. I was like, what? Like I, I literally yeah. thought that she misquoted and she repeated it. She said, no, that was accurate. <laughs> so 2% for venture capital. And so, of course, once you break down that 2% even further with women of color, BIPOC folks, LGBT women, et cetera, that number is probably in the less than a percent. You know, once you break that down by demographics, mm -hmm. that's almost nothing. That's right. literally almost nothing. So, you know, all of that is systemic, um, which I think is really important. And so, you know, again, Lisa, I think we've mentioned systems in most most episodes of this podcast and i would i would gather that what we are simply saying is that it's not simple that it's not just a discrete issue of oh someone is struggling to get a bank loan or oh i can't find a pool or i can't find a tampon you know whatever it is the the instance of the issue and we're what we're suggesting is that systems are in fact the entire atmosphere of how everyone functions everyone and i think the challenge becomes people get pissed off with the discrete issue when it's actually a systemic issue yeah. Yeah. it's not just your gas station down the corner decided to price gas at 5 10 a gallon it's this connected to that connected to this connected to that and so yeah. knowing all of that string of connection you know i think people who maybe deny systems or don't want to think in systems. Unfortunately, that's the complexity that we live in and people try to avoid that complexity. Nothing is simple in my opinion. It's right. just, it's not. And nothing is ahistorical, right? So all of, mm. all of our experiences today are rooted in historical fact or occurrences, right? In this case, discrimination. And to say that, well, I wasn't a part of redlining, like I have no background in banking or housing, so I didn't deny loans to families of color and I didn't redline communities. Mm -hmm. I didn't move, you know, I didn't, I wasn't part of the, the white flight. Um, mm -hmm. And that's all true. You perhaps weren't, right? Because you weren't alive, right. right? And maybe no one mm -hmm. in your family was either, but that doesn't mean that you don't then benefit from mm -hmm. those um, deficiencies that have been created for non-white communities, right? So mm -hmm. that's the piece that when we talk about the system, that this is systemic, is, is it's not about the discrete. It's not about the individual blame. It's operating on a systems 
lens that is historically and contextually rooted and mm-hmm. the effect mm-hmm. of said roots are felt today right that's right that's right absolutely well and and that's I think that's where the issue comes in because Lisa you know we've heard this story before where but I worked hard and I saved up for my house and I did these things and that is true and at the very same time it's a both and statement yes you worked hard and you didn't have systemic policies, protocols, procedures, and history working against you when you went in to get that loan for your house. Or you didn't have someone saying that, wait a minute, I don't believe that you're actually employed at this place. Or as you're trying to sell your house, taking things down that are specific to your identity group, right? So Lisa, I guarantee you when when white folks sell a house, they don't, they're not told that you have to take down the non-traditional art in your house. I guarantee you of that. And so given that these are systems that people either benefit from or are disenfranchised by, even as we all or many of us are working hard at the same time. Because let me be clear, I've got, you know, I, I know that hard work is non-discriminatory, meaning that I know people of all different identities that work their themselves to the bone. And <laughs> there are men and white folks and cisgender folks, et cetera, that still benefit from things that other folks don't benefit from just as we're all working hard. Yeah. That's what's problematic. Yeah. Yeah. That That's just, the system. I'm, I'm going to do a little, a little aside. I'm going to take a little trip down a side street here. Um, okay. I, again, I was watching the news yesterday and they were interviewing um, a number of women in law enforcement and, and law enforcement, the, the rates of women or non um, people who are not men in law enforcement are very, very low. Right. Um, and that is a system. Right. When we think about law, the construction of law enforcement and what that means and whether or not women should or should not be in positions that could put them in quote, unquote, danger, right? Like there's long roots there. Anyway, the, there was a woman of color who was high up in her law enforcement agency, like at a, a commander or deputy chief level, or she actually may even have been the chief, I don't remember, but she was talking about how much harder um, women who make it into leadership positions in law enforcement have to work. And if you look at the resume of a woman in a high up position in law enforcement and you compare it with a man who's at the same level in law enforcement, the resume of the woman is like six pages longer, has way more accolades, tons more presentations, various new programs that they've started Mm -hmm. and a Mm -hmm. whole bunch of this, that, and the other, right? And I think about um, that burden that women broadly and then women of color particularly have to Mm. bear when we think about leadership. So there are few women and women of color in leadership in endurance sport, not because women are not suited Mm -hmm. to leadership in endurance sport, much like the argument that women are not suited to law enforcement, right? Which is just, it's Mm -hmm. background and this framework system that has constantly placed barriers in the way of women to access those positions of power for a variety of reasons, right? Those realities Mm -hmm. now are historically located way back when women were 
considered too fragile or shouldn't mm-hmm. be participating in sport because then they wouldn't be able to have babies and various mm-hmm. things, that and the other, right? And we definitely right. talked about this before. So, but mm-hmm. you know, when you can track that also around gender in different fields and it's absolutely mm-hmm. also applicable in endurance sport. Endurance sport is that's not right. like this bubble that sits separate and apart from law enforcement, housing, banking, education, whatever, right? You need to think about mm-hmm. it in the same way. Well, but okay, so but let's go somewhere else because I'm somewhere else that's still connected though to your point is that I'm thinking about our resistor listening to this podcast, right? Where they bring up specific names of extremely accomplished people. So when you bring up the Barack Obamas of the world, the Michelle Obamas of the world, you bring up LeBron James, which is a new billionaire and the Oprah's and so forth. It's well, if they can do it, then fill in the blank. Everybody else that shares their identity groups can do it. And again, the challenge that I find from a systems level is oftentimes we don't want to acknowledge that the system still exists just because we have one or two Sika Henrys that arrive, if you will. And that's what's so frustrating because it doesn't negate what they went through additionally to be in their role and also what still exists for those of us who will never be a LeBron and will never be an Oprah and will never be a Barack and and, and frankly, don't want to be. We want to be ourselves without the fly in the face, oh, well, the system of racism is over because we've had a Black president. The system of uh, denigrating women in journalism and the visual arts no longer exists because we have an Oprah. That Are you serious? Folks are still just as racist as ever in the NBA, the NFL, and everywhere else where there's a, a large majority of black and brown players there. And so I, I just feel like it is such an easy out to say this one, I'm, I'm going with Malcolm Gladwell again, this one outlier proves that the system doesn't exist. No, actually many of those folks will come back and say, yes, I arrived or I did certain things, but that system still exists. And let me give you examples of it. Right. Right. So, you know, LeBron isn't saying the system doesn't exist as I sit here as a billionaire. He, in fact, says the systems still exist, which is why I established the I Promise School and, you know, created systems for those kids' parents to get their GEDs or those kids to be able to go to um, University of Akron for free if they graduate from his school. And um, I think now he's setting up a, a medical center, a I Promise Medical Center to, to support people that need the free or almost free health care. He's saying that those systems still exist despite my ascension to wherever he claims to be Right. at the very same time. Well, and then proportionally, though, right, when you think about the number of billionaires or millionaire um, folks of color, women of color in particular, proportionate to their group in the United States of America, it's tiny, right, as compared to white and male and that's so that's right. a piece that gets forgotten. And when do you ever, like, no one has ever said to me, well, Lisa, you know, look at, um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of someone like, do you look at, no, Jill Biden is not a good example, but look at some famous white woman who did all these things. You can totally do all those things, right? Because she did it, right? I don't right. ever, think that. there's never this like exceptionalism piece that happens for white people, right? You're not looking at, 
Joe Biden, the average like white working class person isn't looking at Joe Biden necessarily and saying, oh, well, because he did it, I can do it. Nor is anyone telling them that, right? That's but right, exactly. Folks of color, and you know, LeBron James and Oprah Winfrey are exceptions in the sense that they are like mega talented, mega famous, right? Like they're mm-hmm. not representative. Um, and then you, on the side of, you know, white people, we know that there is the cult of mediocrity, right? You don't really exactly have to be very good as a white man to rise up. I mean, the Jeff Bezoses, the Elon Musks and the other people, you know, they probably, they've worked hard, sure. But as compared to folks of color at their similar level, mm-hmm. of which there are very few, um, no, right? Right. And, and, and I, I love what, I forget who said this, but it was something to the extent of um, if, if hard work truly paid off all the time, then janitors and all other sorts of people that we don't usually consider as the face of wealth would in fact be wealthy. Janitors, teachers, public servants, many of them. No, we, hard work does not equate to a certain level in this country. Why? Because of systems that were created to yeah. keep those folks from getting to a certain level. So, you know, it's it's what I used to say all the time, Lisa, in higher ed, as we continue to have all of these committees and initiatives and so forth to make sure that students persist and are retained through their, their education. There's two different things. Retention is what the institution or the organization is doing to make sure that they're supporting that person. Persistence is what the individual is doing to stay in. I knew of countless students that persisted the hell out of that university and still ended up needing to drop out or needing to leave, sometimes not return because there wasn't much work doing that we were doing with the retention piece. And so I know and have been affiliated with way too many people who have persisted through everything and that did not guarantee Oprah status, LeBron status, any any of that status at all. It did not guarantee anything. Some of the hardest people, hardest working people I know still left this world with not much. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and so that's the point I think we really want to get across, you know, a system is a structure that is visible or invisible, right? It's a set Mm -hmm. of laws. It's a set of policies. It is um, decisions that are made and who, who are they made by mm-hmm. and it is rules and regulations both spoken and unspoken it is yes. the way in which money is invested in communities or not and who is making those decisions right that mm-hmm. is what we mean when we talk about systems so we want you all to be systems thinkers right mm-hmm. if you found something online that is a little tip about how do you know if you've arrived mm. at the system thinking platform? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. No, that's good. Well, I'm I'm always striving to arrive in this area, Lisa. <laughs> I always want to continue to think more broadly and, and more inclusively when it comes to all the systems that are functioning at the same time. But I love this little piece. So you know that you're kind of encroaching upon the systems thinking approach when you're asking different kinds of questions than you asked before. So that kind of goes back to what I was saying before. It's not just how much is gas on the corner, but how much is gas everywhere and what's affecting that 
<laughs> and what's the what's the chain from there? Um, another thing, you're hearing catchphrases that raise these cautionary flags. So, for example, is you know when people say, "Well, we need more staff, or we need more money, we need more revenue, we need more X, Y, Z." Usually I ask the question, say a little bit more about that, because that's probably just the symptom of the larger systemic problem. So I would ask that. Um, you can tell if you're thinking in systems, if you're beginning to detect these archetypes and balancing and reinforcing processes in stories that you hear or read. So Lisa, I would suggest anything that holds on to the status quo, well, we've always done it that way, or it's never changed, yeah, or... Yeah. You know, this is what we know that those types of phrases kind of reinforce systems that you may not want. Um, then also you're surfacing some mental models. So maybe um, there's some things that you're thinking about in regards to how do I continue to think about multiple systems similarly in ways that I want to rethink them. So there may be a problem amongst the chain that you're trying to find. And then finally, you're recognizing the leverage points for the classic systems stories. So usually the leverage points are who's really got the power here, regardless of title, role, responsibility, or who's really got the purse strings here, or what's insidious that we don't see, but it's still functioning quite clearly in this system. So all of these, I think, are really important ways to kind of know that you're moving along the systems thinking approach here. Yeah, and then I would add explicitly if instead of going to the individual, you you take a step back and you think, how did this person get brought to this place, right? So rather mm. than saying, well, it's this individual's fault that they can't swim, that they can't bike, that they can't mm. whatever, right? You would actually right. say, so... Sure, it's possible there's some individual choice, but what else could be going on there, right? What else, what, what invisible web is like hanging out underneath this person that is essentially forcing them in one way or the, mm. or the other because it is limiting or um, enhancing mm. the choices available to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Lisa, do we wanna share our hell yeah and hell not? Hell yeah. Hell no. I think uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, way my, the way my dad was almost frantically letting me know about these shortages in tampons, I think the hell no is why the hell do we have a shortage with tampons? I know. Um, right. Like, I'm like, what in the world is going on here? Apparently, there's been a couple of things that have been happening with the shortage in tampons and <laughs> My dad, in fact, sent me the link uh, to share with me exactly what happened. Isn't that funny? Um, but a couple of things that are happening. There's actually a shortage in the production and the harvesting of cotton, which I think is really fascinating. Um, and then the other piece is going back to trucking systems and gas. Even if we had them, could we get them out to the world? And so what I thought was really interesting about the article that my dad sent me was that this is certainly becoming a problem now, but it's also going to be a really uh, distinct problem come fall when middle school and high school kids go back to school in certain states. Because, for example, in the state of California, it's now law that 
tampons and feminine products are to be provided at school. Well, if you can't even get them at school, then what are we supposed to do here? Right. So, you know, just thinking about, okay, goodness, what can we do? And Lisa, I've even kind of looked into some of the nonprofit organizations that I've donated to before to see if there's anything that can be done now in preparation for those students needs in the fall so that there isn't a shortage and we can kind of have a preemptive approach to that. Um, But yeah, hell no to the tampons tampon shortage. We need them. Lots of folks need them. Many people, especially those um, uh, those folks that may be, um, I'm trying to use different language, Lisa, not homeless, um, but unhoused. unhoused. Um, those folks that need those products that already had a problem with access, and it's going to be increasingly so. So those are folks I'm concerned with. And just a little explanation of homeless versus unhoused, right? The shift in language there is because home is more of um, is more of a subjective way that you might describe a place that feels yes. like home, whereas house is a building in mm-hmm. which you spend time, right? And so that's right. Um, folks who are unhoused may believe they feel like legitimately right they have a home wherever that may be they just do not have a house and so that's yes. that's the shift yeah. yes absolutely um, so hell yeah to the shift in language because i really like that um and yeah then, i'm working on it i know and the uh, other hell yeah i think it goes to john stewart and his show the problem in particular the problem with white people because it gave us the idea for this podcast and enabled us to create a thread from tampons to redlining to endurance sport participation to leadership and so you know without you john we may not have gotten there (laughs) exactly there you go it's this whole chain but lisa it it reminds me of i was so happy that you sent me that picture and i went down the rabbit hole to look at those rube Goldberg machines that you told me about that I shared with my son is that, you know, basically these machines are exemplifying a very simple task, but it's done in an overly complicated way that has lots of steps and pieces and parts that move and so forth. And that's exactly what we're talking about in these systems is that things are happening in very complicated ways, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And how do we get to a place where we simplify the process and get people what they need, especially uh, when there's a supply chain problem in lots of different ways, including inclusion. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit for purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA. And when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items on orca.com, use the code livefeisty15. Raise your hand if you believe we need more women at our triathlons. The team at Lifetime is right there with you. Their main focus? 
the iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon coming up on July 24th. And Lisa, I did this race in 2016. And I have to say, it was like being shot out of a cannon with a thousand of your closest friends at the start of the swim. But I hear, unlike 2016, this year, they added a duathlon distance and implemented a rookie refund program, all to get more racers like you of every age, skill level, and background to race the greatest city in the world. So let's ride a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctry.com today and reserve your spot. That's nyctri.com today. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Millie Perry. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social media at Try to Defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women and Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>